This morning's scripture is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. James, chapter 1, 19 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to hear your word, to hear your voice, to hear you. But we don't gather to simply listen. We gather to live out, to practice what we hear. Lord, even the act of confessing and assurance of pardon is a small practice of the way in which we are to live throughout our week in relationship with you and relationship with others. And Lord, now as we take time to look at these words from James, may you soften our hearts, may you open our eyes in wonder, may our ears be opened, may we lay aside distractions, may the walls that we have and that we tend to build around our hearts be removed. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we add more and more stones to these walls. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that anger so easily blinds us, that deafens us. Father, as 2 Timothy says, may your word teach us, may your word rebuke us, may your word correct us, may your word train us to live into the righteousness that you have given us. In the saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there's this story in the Old Testament, and you can find it in Judges chapter 12. It's just a small story, but it's, it's one of those stories that's like the good spy movies, right? So there's the ally power that's trying to infiltrate the Axis power, and so they don the, the, the garb of the German army, and, and they, they, they have the perfect German accent. But, you know, one of the hardest things for a spy is to shake an accent, and that's what can give you away. There's this, uh, there's this one scene in a movie where the Allies are trying to infiltrate Germany, and one character speaks beautiful German, but his accent gives him away, and it leads to this Mexican standoff in a bar in a basement. So Judges 12, this story, that's a random reference, don't worry about it. In Judges 12, we have that kind of a story. The Gileadites have, are fighting the Ephraimites, and, and they take over the fords of the Jordan River. And what you find is 
when somebody crosses the river, when somebody approaches to cross the river, these are verses 4 through 6 if you're interested in where that is found. It's actually quite humorous because they ask them, are you an Ephraimite? It's like, are you a German spy? No, no, right? Well, then the trick happens because they ask him to say a word. They say, say the word Shibboleth. Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the sh and Shibboleth, and so they would say Sibboleth. And at that point, they were able to determine that, oh, this is the enemy, and they would go and deal with the enemy the way in which they dealt with the enemy. James's goal this morning in this passage is, in essence, to ask the question, are you who you say you are? It's like, are you from Boston? No. Say the word car. Right? Are you who you say you are? See, in reality, actions speak louder than words. The real test that James is saying is not that we're able to know and say infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism. Don't worry about what those are. It's, the real test is not whether you know the Sunday school answers. Jesus, God, Bible, and then further down is like Moses and, and maybe water, right? Holy Spirit, right? It, the real test is not that you know the Sunday school answers, but that you live them out. That's what James is driving at this morning. Not just that we know it, but that we live it. And what we'll see in a little bit is actually it's, we're called to live out the way in which God has dealt with us. See, we call ourselves followers of Christ, followers of the way. The way is a way of life, aiming at the peaceable kingdom above our own. So this is what he moves to in the passage. But before we get into the passage, we do need to step back to verse 18 because verse 18 gives us the framework for what we're about to see. So verse 18 sets up the working of God's word. If you profess faith in Christ, you now have new life because of what he has given us. This is the greatest gift we could ever receive. And so in verse 18, James wraps up his first call, his first teaching concerning the word and how we have been called. And now he focuses on how the word then calls us to obedience. How it calls us to live differently. Those who claim this new life, this gift of grace, must, yes, I said must, now live out in obedience. So 18, he gives us new life through his word, through the word of truth. But before we get to verse 19, another thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 21, it says, now the word is planted in you. The word planted in you. This imagery goes back to Jesus and the, the soil parable. You know what I'm talking about? The seed parable, the good soil, the rocky soil. How's your garden? How's your soil? How's your heart? See, the imagery here is, is like a garden. Is our, is our heart cared for? Is it rich in nutrients to foster growth? Or is it overgrown with weeds? And is it walled in? The, the bulletin cover this morning is called My Heart's Garden. And the artist writes, The garden of our hearts are where many things grow and flourish. We may choose to sow the seeds of compassion and love or let the weeds of anger, fear, and resentment overtake us. 
God's word is now planted in you. And now he's concerned with, how's the garden? Will it foster life or will it kill life? Accepting the word planted in you means that you tend the garden. That you help it grow and flourish. And this is where we get to the more or less two points. Hear and live. I went too far. Hear and live. Hear and obey. Hear and do. Verse 19 through 21 are concerned with our hearing, concerned with our receiving, how we are preparing the garden, how we're posturing ourselves. And verse 19 is blunt and to the point. It's actually not new with James. It's old Jewish wisdom. You see it in the Proverbs also. It's that old adage, you have two ears and one mouth, so you should do twice as much listening as you do talking, right? It's sound advice. Makes perfect sense when we approach God's word, which is what he's talking about, but it also makes good sense in relationship. So you see it again throughout the book of Proverbs in various places. Uh, I like Proverbs 17, 28. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. That's why I don't talk much. One commentator actually wrote, the great talker is rarely a great listener. The opposite of what James calls us to, I think, is sometimes the approach of, oh, I'm familiar with this passage. Yeah, I, I know all about this passage. I know what it says. And it's, it's not, I, don't, I don't need to hear any more about this passage right? And this goes on and on and on. Rather, our approach is summarized again in verse 21 with humbly accept, receive in meekness. Our approach is to be one of active and open listening. A teachable spirit. A teachable heart. That's good soil to foster growth. One that is open to our own probable ignorance. A heart that is seeking to learn. The opposite of arrogance. Listening before giving opinion. So James says, be quick to listen. Slow to speak. But that's not it. James pushes further. He goes on to say, be slow to anger because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The commentator I just quoted, that the great talker is rarely a great listener, goes on to write, and never is the ear more fully stopped than when anger takes over. James just bluntly calls out how our anger does not make us Christ-like. It does not produce in us the righteousness that God desires. Now, is there room for righteous anger? Sure, maybe. But if we're honest, we probably rarely have that anger. Both James and Paul, one of the other authors who writes concerning anger, give strong and very straight warnings that anger and sin are very close to each other. It's like trying to walk on the edge of a knife. It's not going to work. Both counsel followers to great 
watchfulness. I mean, often, if I'm being honest, and hopefully you're being honest, often our anger is more full of our own self-importance, our own self-assurance, our own self-assertion, our own pride, our own stubbornness. We tend to get bent out of shape over trivial things when true injustice is taking place around the world. When anger comes in, listening often goes out. And James is calling it what it is. It's not a teachable spirit. In fact, throughout the New Testament, anger is listed with the things that we are called to put away. And in the list of what we're called to, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, anger is not listed. James' point here is that in order to rightly tend to the garden that God's Word now resides in, we need to put ourselves in a posture that is teachable, that is open, and that is meek. Disciples do more listening than talking. Students do more listening than talking. It's a posture of receptiveness. There's an attitude of humility and meekness and gentleness. This phrase, again in verse 21, and humbly accept the word planted in you. A better translation is receive with meekness. Meekness is a posture of self-subduing gentleness. It's not the church mousy attitude but it's often expressed in the ideas of long-suffering, patient endurance. It's power under control, strength under control. It includes being teachable. It's closely related to humility, but it's slightly different. Humility is dealing with others. Meekness is dealing with myself. An internal attitude, an internal posture. That looks a lot like being quick to listen, Slow to speak, slow to anger. Now again, I believe G James is speaking to the word that's planted in us now. The time we spend in the word, the time here where we hear the word read, we hear the word preached. But again, it also includes relationships. I think it's very sound advice for relationships. There's a book written in 1998 called The, the Argument Culture. Still timely uh, book. In it, the author talks about the fact that we, uh, sorry, I missed a page. Our culture is permeated by an atmosphere of arguing, a warlike atmosphere where every, every conversation is almost like a fight. In a culture where we often listen, not to learn, but to prepare our response, that, that bleeds into us whether we realize it or not. And we can often bring that then in here and in our family. A different author challenges a way, a practical way, again, if part of his is hearing and doing, a practical way to be meek, to be teachable, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. He poses a few questions. What do I owe this person? While I might not be obligated to agree, we do owe them good listening, seeking to understand what can I learn from them? Recognizing our own fallibility, our own ignorance. 
Seeking truth is more important than winning the argument. Seeking truth is more important than protecting my own reputation. And how can I cope? As brothers and sisters, our goal is is not to demolish each other, but to equip and to encourage each other. Okay, so James talks about hearing and now moves on to doing. Verses 22 through 25 lay out for us an illustration that call us to obedience, to actually go and do something, right? Again, these aren't new words for James. As the stepbrother to Jesus, he heard Jesus say multiple times, blessed are you if you do them, if you keep them, if you obey my commands. James isn't just concerned with listening, with merely listening. He's concerned with listening and doing. See, to hear and to not take action is to lie to yourself. To hear and to not take action is to deceive yourself. We may love to study. We may love to read. We may love to talk deep things and and theology and, and important things, but all of that is pointless if it doesn't affect your life. Right theology is pointless if it doesn't play itself out in piety, in living out good things, but not ends in and of themselves. The goal is to change us, our hearts, and how we live. Again, it goes back to the introduction. We deceive ourselves if we think it's just about knowing the right answers. You you might be able to talk a good game, and maybe deceive people on Sunday morning. But if I can reference a show on Netflix, a series of unfortunate events, you, you might be Count Olaf. Everybody sees through it. You can deceive some people, but not everybody. We're in dangerous territory when we think that simply hearing about anger is enough, but then we go home and we get enraged at our family whether internally or externally, it's deception. The key here is the person who doesn't just look at himself and go about their day, who doesn't just hear it and then go about their week. The key is the person who continues in it, who doesn't forget it, who does it, who practices it, who puts it into habit. It's, it's, it's a habit. Learning and then doing. A practice. Learn, remember, do. This is a threefold scheme, theme all over Scripture. We're taught to remember what God has taught us and to put it into practice. And you know what the goal is? To be Christ-like. What Second Timothy says, to train us in righteousness. The opposite of what verse 20 says to produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, now you might think or ask, where does faith fit into this? James doesn't address that fully here, but he's going to in chapter 2. It requires a fuller understanding of justification and sanctification. Now, there's a phrase I briefly want to point out as well in verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom. To us, this might sound weird, right? In our, in, our, in our Western way of thinking, our Western understanding of liberty, of freedom, it's that I'm not truly free 
when my choices are limited. I'm not truly free when there are laws that restrict me. But true freedom doesn't mean no restraint. True freedom means the right restraints. It's, it's like a good board game. I, I love board games. And, and I like the, the ones that, you know, you can find at Toys R Us. Well, rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but I like some of the more obscure ones. <clears throat> but I'll use Monopoly as an example. I, I can play the game how I want. True freedom for me is to not be hindered by the number of pips on the die. I'm going to move where I want. True freedom is me paying you what I think is fair in rent. Before long, am I going to have any friends that want to play Monopoly with me? No, right? The rules, the laws, allow us to enjoy the game as it was designed. So the law that gives freedom is God's perfect law for the way he designed life to be. Interestingly enough, Monopoly's uh, actually a lesson on capitalism, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <clears throat> I listen to random podcasts. That was a terrible joke. Oh, <laughs> strike from, ser- from second service. <laughs> either way, up to this point, we learn that not only are we called to hear the word, but we're called to obey it. Our hearing influences our obeying. But I think it's cyclical. Our obeying makes us more receptive to hearing, to obeying, to hearing. It becomes cyclical. Bonhoeffer talks about this in The Cost of Discipleship. How sometimes we just need to obey and it puts us in a posture to then hear. Sometimes we're hearing and we know we need to obey. Finally, verses 26 through 27. James gives us examples of how we are to be doers of the word. All right? uh, again, at this point, it, it's helpful to see that these three topics in light of verse 18 again. In Scripture, again in verse 18 and throughout Scripture, we see his choosing of us, similar to his choosing of Israel, was in fact an act of care for the helpless. We see that at the beginning of verse 27. His giving us new life was giving new life to those that had no power to take the new life. We were helpless. We also see, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, that we were not the brightest and the best. Even more, we have nothing to do with the fact that God gave us new life. We were enemies with him, as Chris pointed out last week. Secondly, verse 18 talks about the word of truth. He's given us new birth by the word of truth. That we have this new life, and so our words, verse 26, are to be like his words. Ones that bring truth, ones that bring life into people. And thirdly, in verse 18, the first fruits are speaking about a righteous life, a pure life, a holy life, to be like the Father. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning on these two verses because they're actually the agenda for the rest of the book. You'll see in 3 and 4, he talks about the tongue. Uh, Further, in 2 and 5, he talks about caring for those in need. And then he talks about the holy life, the pure life in chapter 
4, but I do have a few comments. First, James never intended for verses 26 and 27 to be an exhaustive list, to be a comprehensive list of what it means to be a Christian. But they obviously are deeply important and reflect a life following Christ. Secondly, the concept of religion. James James uses the term three times in these two verses, and sometimes we have uh, just our our feathers get a little ruffled by that word religion. And I, I, I think we need to have a better understanding of it. The Latin word for religion is to bind. To be religious is to bind ourselves to something or someone. Everybody's religious. Everybody binds themselves to something or someone. Everybody does it. And the Greek understanding of religion is the external manifestations of faith. Another Greek word of piety, of of spirituality. The external manifestations of faith. So religion is the specific ways our heart relationship to God is externally expressed in our lives. I draw attention to this because I personally think that it's misguided to to set relationship and religion up as an either-or dichotomy. I think it's kind of misguided. I think it's a misunderstanding of what James is talking about. Faith lived out is religion. And the last thing I'll say about these two verses is that, um, again, a lot will be said about these things, but I find it interesting that James lists the tongue first. But again, he spent a lot of time with Jesus. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You reveal your garden by what you say. His words strike at the way that we use our words for encouragement, but also for destruction. Your quiet time might be regular, your church attendance spotless, you're giving above and beyond the 10%, but an unbridled tongue is deception. John Calvin puts it this way, when people shed their grosser sins, they're extremely vulnerable to contract this complaint, that is, the tongue. A man will steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he'll be a shining light of outward religious observance, and yet will revel in the destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal. A few weeks ago, I talked about Mark and how sarcasm can be a way in which we destroy others and deceive ourselves. Literally means to tear flesh. I think it's fascinating, again, that he starts with our words. How important they are. The second aspect that James speaks to is care for the needy, the orphans and the widows. The bigger picture is the care for those who had no hope. The care for those who have no father, who have no source, who have no life. Notice James writes, God our father to the orphans and the widows. To care for those who are hopeless, to those who could never repay you, who could never give back. It's like the Camino backpack drive. A way to ease the burden for others 
for things that we, we take for granted. School supplies, easy. A way in which to care for those in need. And this is twofold. We do this individually and we do this systemically, systematically. Are we supporting policies concerning caring for those in need? One commentator poses it this way. We may plead a lack of time, but if we have time for recreation and social visits, we have the time. The final point, the pure life, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world, does not not mean, sorry, not being in the world. Doesn't mean we abandon and pull ourselves out, but it's being aware of the pollution and the way it affects us. Again, as Calvin talks, we, we, we could not be committing adultery, not stealing, not drunkenness, and those types of things, but the pollution of consumerism, the pollution of individualism, the, com- the pollution of comfort, convenience, the pollution of gluttony and pride. In reality, pollution is about the small things. Most of us can stay away from the big things but it's about the small things, the small ways in which the smog will choke out the word within you. In summary, these two verses are like father, like child. Like father, like child. Now, I don't know about you. I read passages like these, study them all week, and I think, man, I suck. I don't do this. Not nearly to the degree that I feel like I should. I care more about my own comfort. I care more about my own wants. I don't even heed my own advice, let alone God's. We can become weighed down by regret. We can become weighed down by shame. I hear Wormwood's voice in my ear saying, Tim, you're not that, so you're not his. I feel ashamed of how my words and my anger often cause wounds in others. How I avert my eyes from those in need. And how my heart breathes deep the smog of self-centeredness, the smog of entitlement, the smog of more. But then I remember the beauty of the gospel. And I know God does not count my sin against me because he already charged it to Christ. And it reminds me of one of my favorite books and one of my favorite authors, Jerry Bridges. He writes this, To the extent that I grasp in the depth of my being this great truth of God's forgiveness of my sin through Christ, I will be freed up to honestly and humbly face the particular manifestations of sin in my life. You might sit here week in, week out, week after week after week, hearing and hearing and hearing, but not changing, not doing. You're forgiven. You're freed. But it's costly because now it calls for your obedience. It calls for honest assessment of my life, my time, my money, my stuff. 
And we can face that squarely and we can face that honestly because he died on the cross to forgive us of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when I stand accused by my regrets, when the devil roars his empty threats, I preach the gospel to myself. I'm not condemned. Jesus, you are my defense. Father, I confess the ways in which over the years I listen, but I don't do. The ways in which I'm slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to anger. The ways in which I care about my own needs before those with less. Father, I pray that we would be a people who do not only hear the word, but we live the word. Father, one way in which we show obedience is through our tithes and our offerings. And now as we do that, may you use those to further your kingdom. That more would be called to life through it. In your name we pray, amen.